to actually make you move around in the scriptures this morning. Groans erupt from all over. Exactly. You see? Man. If that's not the gift of foretelling, I don't know what it is. Romans 12, we're in a series called Committed to Worship. Actually, the larger series is the sermons I've wanted to preach. But we're looking at what is worship? What exactly is it? And we've been looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 to understand a little bit more of what it looks like. So I want to tell you a story. And this story took place when I was in my undergraduate work. And I was in a group dynamics class, one of my classes I had to take. And in this group's dynamics class, we had to split into groups, into small groups of of four to six people and go out and do projects outside of class. And one of the projects that we had to do was a conformity project. Here's what my group did. We took a road in Lynchburg, Virginia, that was very, very populated. It was well-driven, but it was entirely being reconstructed. It, was, it had been all dug up, and it was in the process of being repaved. And here's what we did. We had five of us, each of us in our own cars, and we waited until there was a break in traffic. It was a two-lane road, one going this way, one going this way. And when we got to that break, all five of us, I was in the lead, drove out, got in front of all the traffic and slowed down until it bottlenecked the traffic, about 40, 50 cars behind us, all right on the bumpers. But don't groan. This is a good project. This is really exciting. What I did, I drove very slowly and then I stopped. And I got out of the car, making this big display pointing in front of the car as if to all the cars behind me, there was an object in the road that you needed to avoid. And I climbed back in the car and slowly drove way around this imaginary object. And then the car that was behind me, one of my group peers, he came up to the imaginary spot and stopped and climbed out the window, pointing to it, got back in and drove slowly all the way around. And then the third person in our group came up and sort of hesitated and then slowly drove around. And then the next two people in our group didn't hesitate. They just drove straight way around this imaginary object. There was nothing there. It was obvious there was nothing there. And then we watched. And for 20 to 30 of the cars that followed us, they came up to the spot and drove way around nothing. That was a conformity project. Then we had to take that information back and do a statistical analysis on it. But it was exciting getting people to do what we wanted them to do. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You ready? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable and perfect. Now let's go back down memory lane for just a minute. You have your Bibles open, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We spent two weeks looking at verse 1, and here's what we found out. You ready? Follow it with me. I'm actually in Corinthians. What kind of a pastor does this church hire? Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore. Remember what that word appeal meant? And man, I beg you, I implore you, I plead with you. Therefore, brothers, Paul's writing to Roman believers. 
And he says, by the mercies of God. In other words, brothers, look at all the mercies that God has given us that I've just outlined in chapters 1 through 11 of this letter. Look at all those mercies. And now I'm begging you, make a response. Respond. I'm going to tell you what he says. But he says, respond to them. Do you remember what mercy is? Mercy is the love and compassion that flows out of God's heart whenever he sees someone suffering from sin. God's mercy is his power to deal with the consequences of sin. If you're a mercy-filled person, then you are bent to go and try to relieve the suffering of other people. That's what mercy is. And so Paul says, look at all the mercies of God. I'm begging you, believers, present your bodies. You remember what that meant? Present means to place yourself at God's disposal. That's what it meant. It was a sacrificial term. It would, they would take the dead carcass of a lamb and they would put it onto the altar. That's, that word present was the same word that the priests used. So place yourself, all of you, your bodies, not just physically, all of who you are, give to God, place yourself at his disposal. Look what it says, as a living sacrifice, not dead. He doesn't want your death. He wants your life. It's easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. He wants you to live for him. Holy, remember that word holy. It means to be set apart exclusively for God's purposes. So holy, set yourself apart, place yourself at his disposal, set yourself entirely apart, exclusively for God, not some for God and some for me, not some for God, some for the world, all of it for God, for his use. And he know what? God says that the one who does that is acceptable. Do you remember what that word means? Extraordinarily pleasing. See, God finds it extraordinarily pleasing when believers put themselves at God's disposal, all of who they are, commit fully and say, God, do with me as you want. I'm all yours. And look at what Paul says. This is spiritual worship. That word spiritual, we discover, means logical, reasonable. In other words, this is what makes sense. Not worship the way we define it, but worship the way Paul defined it, which is service. In other words, if you want to serve God fully, it's going to be extraordinarily pleasing to him because in order to serve God fully, you have to place yourself at his disposal exclusively for him. That's worship. If you've narrowly defined worship as singing or as something that takes place on Sunday mornings, well, this is to expand your definition. You worship all week like I do as well. And this is what Paul's been teaching us. Knowing, seeing, and understanding God's mercies creates a desire in us to commit fully to serving him in every area of our life. Now, I want you to get something that might be subtle. Let me get you to think. Do you agree? Can you say amen? That God inspired the writers to write what they did in our Bible then who's pleading with the believers? Have you ever thought like that? 
Have you ever known God to plead and to beg and to implore? That's what the Greek word means. See, on one level, it's the human author, but this is God divinely carrying Paul along and inspiring him with his breath as he's breathing out scripture to the Roman believers, to us. God is pleading, give your life to me. Give all of it. Believe me, it's going to be great. He implores us. And in a decided, unwavering manner, place all of who we are at God's disposal. Have you ever, ever, so powerfully felt God move in your life that you just right then and there gave him all of you? Have you ever done that? If you read the biographies of the David Livingstons and the Hudson Taylors and the Amy Carmichael's and the present day living biographies of the John Pipers and the MacArthur's. You're going to hear them speak of a moment that God gripped them so powerfully that they wanted nothing else but to give them their entire lives. It's what he asks and the world thinks we're crazy. But to God were fragrant offerings, extraordinarily pleasing to him. It's not only what he asks, friends, listen, it's stronger than that. It's what he requires. And this is what he's going to bring about in the willing Christian heart. But friends, let me ask you something. How is that going to happen? Paul answers that question. You want to live a life of total commitment? You want to live a life where you can place all of who you are at God's disposal and say, God, do with me what you want. I want to serve you. I want to worship you. Then Paul says changes have to happen. And he's going to give us two changes that need to occur in every believer. We're going to look at one this morning and we're going to look at one next week. Here we go. Number one, living a life of worship requires change. What is that first change? We can no longer be shaped by the world. Here's what he says. Do not be conformed, verse 2, to this world. Now, in order to understand the force of Paul's argument, I need to take you behind the scenes of what Paul is saying. You ready? You're hanging in there. This is not complicated. I think it's going to be liberatingly freeing when you understand this. You ready? Here we go. In the Greek text, the original writing of this, there's, this is a command. Now get this. Ready? It's a command to stop doing something that's already occurring. In other words, Paul is writing the Roman believers to stop conforming to the world because they are conforming to the world. The, God is writing through Paul to the Roman believers and to us because many, many Christians are already conforming to the world. This isn't preventative preaching. This is a command to stop doing what you're doing. What's it mean? What's conformed mean? I love this word. It means to be fashioned after some likeness, pattern, or standard. What's it mean to be conformed to this world? It means to be formed or molded to the standards of this world. Or as one translator put it, Phillips, he said, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be shaped by what the world loves. 
But friends, you've got to understand what Paul means when he uses that word world. Because it's ambiguous. Here's what he means. It means the present sinful age, which is opposed to God and antagonistic to him. You see, the God of this age, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, is Satan. Did you know that Satan is the little g God of this age, he says? John says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's 1 John 5. The world is a living, breathing, powerful force that wants to overthrow God and subvert Christians. That's the world, and it's one of the three enemies of every believer. It wants to shape us into its image, which is God-opposing and sin-loving. That is the world. But what's it look like in real life? It's so easy to put a definition on it. What's it really function like? You know what? Can you turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? We're going to look at it. Three ways that this world functions. 1 John chapter 2. Look what he says. 2. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. Do not love, that's agape love, powerful love. Do not think the world is precious. That's what that means. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, ready? Here it is. Three ways that the world functions for all that is in the world. Number one, the desires of the flesh. John says, this is all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what's the world? What's the world, and how does it function? Three ways. Number one, it's our fleshly desires that find never-ending opportunity for fulfillment. What else is the world? It's our never-ever-satisfied eyes that always want more. And the world is there to give it. What's the world and how does it function? It's the pride in our hearts that says, I deserve to get. It's the pride of possessions. Don't you remember McDonald's? You deserve what? You know what Wendy's current slogan is? Or what they're doing, rather? You deserve a free download of music when you buy a burger. Now, how does Wendy's know I deserve that? That's the world. Not only does advertising want to place the desire in you and stoke the desire in you, it wants to give you the pride of possessions that says, I deserve it anyways. And friends, it's a constant force pressing in on every believer to reshape us in its image. And believers can be conformed to the world. Now listen, it doesn't mean, now please listen to this. It does not mean when Paul says do not conform 
to the world. It doesn't mean that Christians ought to dress in some peculiar, peculiar Christian way. It doesn't mean that we should stay apart from every godless person. And it really doesn't mean that we ought to create entire subcultures, insulated bubbles to live in. It's not what it means. And it doesn't mean to flee to the deserts like what were called the desert monks to live in isolated meditation. That's not what Paul means when he tells us not to conform. It's not a call to cut off interaction with the world. It's a command. Listen, this is so important. It's a command to not let the world shape you. That's what he's saying. Don't let the world fashion you in its image. Why? Because we're to be holy, distinct, set apart exclusively for God, having hearts that are running after him and not after the world or the things of it. So let's pause for just a minute. Let me get your attention and we're going to pause and we're going to see how this actually fits with Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You've got to keep it in context. You ready? Paul is pleading with his fellow believers who were living out a friendship with the world. They were conforming to the world's standards. They were being squeezed into the world's mold. And he's asking them to stop. He's commanding them to stop. They weren't living holy lives. They weren't living set apart exclusively for God. They were not extraordinarily pleasing to him. And they were not serving God with a full commitment. Paul's asking them, telling them, wake up to the reality of your condition. Commit yourselves fully to God. And to do that, friends, Paul's saying, you've got to make a change. You can't commit to God fully and be conformed to the world. They're diametrically unposed. There must be changes, and that first change is to stop conforming to the world. I love that word change, but you know what? I like the word transformation better. We're going to see that next week. See, transformation, now you got to get this. Believe me, this is grace. If you don't get this, you're going to get in legalism. Transformation is a change that God authors. Did you hear that? Believe me, I've been in legalistic churches and I've read legalistic theology and their transformation is a change that you must figure out how to make. But grace says that God authors it, but listen, you're going to dip into liberal theology if you don't bring the rest of it in. It's grace that God offers that has to be met with our cooperation. Do you see what I'm saying? The divine initiator is God. Nobody can change spiritually if God does not initiate the power. And nobody will change spiritually if God initiates the power but lives irresponsibly conforming to the world. I have to walk with the Spirit. You have to keep in step with the Spirit. We have to repent. We have to obey. We have to work out our salvation. We have to trust. I have to cooperate in the obedience that makes possible what He teaches me to say no to. The grace has appeared, Roger told you, last week. 
to help you say no to ungodliness. But if we do nothing, you got to get this. I kids cannot compete with a baby. They're too cute. <laughs> if we do nothing... Forget it. I'm quitting. <laughs> I love it. Don't worry about it. If you have babies in here, that's awesome. If we do nothing, we will conform to the world. Do you hear that? If we do nothing, we will conform to the world. If nonconformity is a steady walk uphill, you know that. You're constantly moving upstream. You're going against the current. You're the one fish swimming in the opposite direction of the rest of them. That's what it means to not conform. It's, I love this. It's countercultural living. I want to be a counterculturalist, not conforming to this world. But friends, listen, one moment. I know this. I've experienced this. You have too. A moment's lapse of intentional effort and the world begins Pressing me into its mold. To live as many Christians do, never ever thinking of the dangers of conforming to the world, slowly being shaped into its image. It's an unnatural way for believers to live. You know, I read of a social experiment one time where a biologist took a, a plant, or a, a pot rather, and there was a tomato plant in the middle of it. And he took caterpillars and he lined them all around the rim of that pot, head to whatever's on the other end of a caterpillar, all the way around. And then he let them loose. And listen, this is what happened. This is true. They walked around the rim of the pot for five days, even though life-sustaining nourishment was right in their center because one caterpillar would not deviate, none of them did, and in five days, every one of them were dead. How do we not conform to the world? Well, listen to Paul's answer. Ready? Galatians chapter 1. Would you turn there? Galatians chapter 1, friends. This is probably the second most important part of this sermon. The first is this, if you, if you want to live fully committed to God, then the changes must make place, take place, and the first change is we've got to stop conforming to the world. Here's the second most important part of this sermon. How do we not conform to this world? Look at what Paul tells us. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's the world. How do we not conform? This is entirely what Jesus came to do. And he's doing it through the cross of Christ. You're still in Galatians. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Wow, what a statement that the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, Paul's telling us that God is freeing us from the mold that the world's trying to squeeze us into. And the way that he's doing that is he's killed it. He's put a death blow to the world through the cross. 
It's not dead yet. It is dying, and it's too weak to have a mastery control over the believer. Friends, how do we not conform to the world? Listen, it's, the, it's why Jesus came. To free us from the grip that the world has. And enable us and empower us to live as citizens in heaven. That's what Philippians 3 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. How do we not conform to the world, friends? Listen, it's Jesus, who through the cross gave a death blow to the power of the world. And through the very power that raised him to life, it will enable him to bring everything under his control, even his very own people. How do we live in this world? Look at John 17, and that's the last one I'm going to make you turn to. John chapter 17. Look what it says in, in Christ's priestly prayer. He's praying to God the Father. His disciples are right there with him. And he says in verse 15, My prayer is not that you, God, take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. How do we not conform to the world? It's the very power of God through the cross of Christ that is still at work in every believer, enabling us to not walk after the world, be fashioned by the world, and protected from the God of this world. We can live in this world without being conformed. But you cannot serve God wholeheartedly if you are being shaped into the likeness of this world. And God, through Paul, is waking us up to this fact. So let me ask you a question. I always tell you this. You might as well be honest because God knows everything in you. Seriously. Do you live any differently than those who are in this world. Are you being so squeezed into the world's mold that there's virtually no difference in the way that you live and the way that the one who has no hope in eternal life lives? In other words, are we distinguishable from those who are of this world? When difficulty comes, do we respond the way that the world does? It keeps us, worldliness keeps us from committing fully to God. You know how it works? Here's how I've heard it work. I've heard this a lot of times. If I commit fully to God, I'm afraid of what he's going to ask me to do. If I give the way God has asked me to in my finances, I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. I won't be able to get that car. If I serve God fully in the church the way that you're preaching, Pastor Tim, it's going to interfere with the, the hobbies in my life. It's what it means to be conformed to this world. You know, have you ever, on a really clear, bright, sunny day, gone to the movies? 
And you come out of this sunshine, you walk into that theater that's dark already, and it, it takes a while before your vision can clear and you can see again. And then when you leave that theater, after a couple of hours being in that darkness, you go back out in the bright sunlight, you can barely hold your eyes open to even find your car. Have you experienced that? You know, to an ophthalmologist, this is called adaptation. Did you know that the eye takes approximately 30 minutes to adapt from bright sunlight to darkness? And that when it does, it becomes one million more times sensitive than at full daylight. But here, listen to this. It takes five minutes to adapt from darkness back to light fully. There's a subtle, now listen, there's a subtle, oftentimes slow adaptation that takes place in the lives of Christians that oftentimes they're not even aware of. Their souls adjust and they become attuned to the point that they don't even notice the darkness that's all around them. At one time, those filthy jokes were offensive. Now, They've got a couple of them in their pocket ready to pull out whenever a, a humorous moment's needed. Once nothing could displace the importance of worshiping Christ on Sunday mornings with their family and God, but now there's other activities that can easily draw them away. Maybe it seems like eons ago that you used to eagerly, passionately anticipate Time in God's word, reading and meditating and praying to God. But now those times are the exception rather than the norm. See, I grew up in central New York. I know the dangers of hypothermia. I know the brutal cold winters that you can have. And the mental stages intrigue me of hypothermia. Here they are. They go from alertness to drowsiness to unconsciousness. And I understand that most victims, when they're suffering from hypothermia, listen, they never even realize that they're potentially going to die. See, Christians who are conforming to the world, who are letting the world press them into its mold, are spiritually drowsy. They are unaware of their condition. In fact, friends, listen, I know this is true because I do this. When you talk to them about the dangerous condition they're in, there's little to no response. I agree with John Piper who says that in order to no longer conform to the world, we need to develop the mindset of exiles. Are you in exile? This home's not your home. Your home awaits you in heaven. You're a pilgrim here, not a settler. Piper says we need to stop assuming that when we turn on that television, it's going to be helpful to your soul. He says... You can't assume anymore that the worldview in secular schools and colleges are going to actually help your soul. This world is not only ungodly, it's anti-God. And what it manufactures is seeks to use against him and his followers. 
So Paul says, live in the world, but refuse to be conformed to it. If we're going to make ourselves, our lives respond to God's grace and mercy and commit fully to a life of serving him, there's got to be changes. And the first change we need to make is to not be conformed to this world. Would you close your eyes for a moment? I'm not going to ask you to come down. We have communion we're going to transition into. But I sure would appreciate your honest response. Are you conforming right now to the world? You know it if you are. You know it because God's telling you. And it doesn't feel good right now in your heart. I know I've been there. It's a world squeezing you into its mold and its likeness. Would you raise your hand and be honest? Everybody's eyes closed. Just be honest. Raise your hands high and just admit it. Because I want to pray for you. Keep your hands up. They're going up all over the sanctuary anymore. Be honest. Friends, you know the change you need to make. And God has never commanded you to do something he won't enable you to do. Come to the cross of Christ again and let it work in your heart and free you from the world's grip. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, dozens of them who raised their hands. Lord, they know the truth. They're not fully committed. They can't be. They cannot be fully, wholeheartedly serving you, committed to that, and be conformed to the world. And Lord, it bothers them. You have shown them that. Lord, I pray that they would respond, that they would repent. And Lord, that they would do what Paul has commanded us. Stop letting the world squeeze them into the mold of the likeness of the world. There's going to be changes they need to make. Lord, I don't know what they're going to be. I don't know how extensive they are, but you do and you're willing because you're a God of mercy to extend your compassion and your power and your strength. Lord, let my brothers and sisters take this seriously and not let even a day go by without making the changes they need to make. And in Jesus' name, amen.